Welcome back. This is Mark Steiner, and that's a piece of music that might have been heard at George Washington's Mount Vernon in the 1700s by Alexander Ronegal, who was a composer and performer who taught uh, the Washington, uh, Nellie Washington how to play the piano, uh, and was also probably heard by Ona Judge. Uh, and we're going to explore the story of Ona Judge right now with Dr. Erica Armstrong Dunbar, who wrote the book, Never Caught, The Washington's Relentless Pursuit of the Runaway Slave, Ona Judge. She's a professor at the University of Delaware. Uh, she's the Blue and Gold Distinguished Professor of Black Studies and History at the University of Delaware, uh, and joins us here, uh, Eric Armstrong Dunbar. Welcome. Good to have you with us. Thank you so much for having me. So I had to find that music when I read it in your book. <laughs> <laughs> um, just thinking about her as I listened to that music, and, and the, one of the things you do in this book, which I find fascinating, this is the story of Ona Judge, but you also paint this incredible portrait of that moment in history of the Washingtons, of what their life was like, of what life was like at that moment. It's like you consumed that period of history like an actor consumes a part. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. I, you know, I tried, I wanted very much, thank you for, for saying that, because I wanted very much to do that. I think one of the things that's wonderful about doing this kind of work, this kind of recovery history work, is that I get to tell the story of Ona Judge, a 22-year-old woman who eventually made the decision to um, escape, to basically steal herself from the Washingtons. But the other piece to this book is that I get to explore early America, early the, the United States at the beginning of its founding. But this is a different book in that it explores this period through the eyes of the enslaved. And I think we're used to hearing this story via the Founding Fathers, and those are important stories as well. But it was my goal to to take Ona and to um, allow her to serve as a vessel to understand early America in Virginia, in New York, in Philadelphia, and eventually in New England. Uh, Her life serves as as a vehicle to do that. So let's talk about this moment. I mean, and Ona Judge. I mean, her name. You know, some people know who she she was and hear the name, but not the intensity of this. And we're talking about the 1790s, and George Washington just become president of the United States, mm-hmm. um, moving their family to Philadelphia, New York, as you write about, which is where the temporary capitals were while they were plotting out Washington and building Washington. Um, but but this this and so and he thought of himself. Washington, I guess, thought of himself as, as a benevolent, a benevolent um, master. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, when I thought about that, you know, they, 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 they thought about how they couldn't figure out why somebody would want to run, run away from them. Mm-hmm. M- much in the same way why people don't see racism when it's in front of their face in America, it seems, at this moment. <laughs> there's, there's a connection between that for me. Yeah, I, I think that um, the Washingtons definitely did see both he and uh, George Washington and Martha. And I think an important thing to note is that Martha Washington actually held more people in bondage than did her husband. Um, but the two of them together, at least by the end of Washington's life, there were over 300 enslaved people at Mount Vernon. And I do think that they saw themselves as relatively benevolent slave owners, that they... Um, 
punished when necessary, um, but didn't necessarily fashion themselves as cruel or evil. And of course, that was through their eyes. It was my <laughs> intention to to tell this story through another lens, and that's through the, the lens of the people that they held in human bondage. Um, and what's so interesting is we see Washington change and develop over time. He becomes president in 1789, and by the 1790s, he's living in the North that had already started to dismantle slavery, very different from his Mount Vernon in Virginia. Um, and what we get to see through Ona's story is the way he maneuvers around the law in order to maintain his enslaved laborers in his house in Philadelphia, uh, and how he basically breaks the law later on, a law in which he signed a Fugitive Slave Act in order to to try and reclaim uh, Ona once she runs away. So it's this complicated narrative about what slavery was at the beginning of the founding of this nation, and also how the founders, kind of, as I've said in other places, decided to put that decision or that confrontation with slavery, to put it off for other generations to, to deal with. One of the things you describe here with really interesting detail is what life was like for people enslaved. But I think that one of the most important things since we're having a kind of a, um, a reawakening about what it was like to be, quote unquote, in the house. Mm-hmm. And and that the, the you describe here how Ona Judge, who was the, the, the servant, direct servant, slave, enslaved servant for Martha Washington, mm-hmm. taking care of the children as well. Um, what her life was like living in the house in some ways was more onerous than in the fields and in your own individual cabins. I found that a really kind of fascinating way you describe that. Yeah, thank you. I think one of the, one of the, as you said, myths is that life was easier for those who were enslaved who found themselves laboring inside the house as opposed to doing agricultural work. And what I wanted to show was through Ona's life was that she was uh, sort of t- Martha Washington's top slave, if you will. She was responsible for the most intimate of duties, helping her bathe, brushing her hair, helping her with clothing selections, and was constantly around. And what living and working in your owner's home meant was that you really had no reprieve from uh, constant supervision. So those who lived off in quarters that were detached from their owner's home found spaces to live and love and breathe away from from the people that claimed them as human bondage and human property, and, and Ona wasn't able to do that. She was constantly on call, constantly under their supervision. And so this myth of being a, quote, house slave and that being somewhat supposedly easier, I've tried to dismantle that a bit in this book. And you did dismantle it. And also the, the idea that, that, that Ona Judge and women like, men and women like Ona Judge, had no space. Mm-hmm. I mean, there was no space for them to retreat to. Yeah. They were yeah, always they... there in the, having to sleep next door in the room with children next to the Washingtons themselves. There was no way at all for, for people just to kind of breathe. Right, and and not even, for someone like the Washingtons, at least there was <laughs> there was another room in which, um, you know, Ona uh, slept 
more than likely in the room directly attached to the Washingtons with one of their grandchildren. But for other people who were enslaved throughout the Mid-Atlantic and in New England, they found themselves in the most kind of pushed into the corners of the most out-of-the-way places, so in cellars, in attics, and under the stairs, anywhere there was space. Um, and they usually dealt with the worst of conditions, the hottest of attics, the coldest of cellars, and that was their life. So let's talk about who Ona Judge was. Who yeah. was this young woman who escaped in her 20s from the Washington? Who was she? Yeah, Ona, so Ona Judge was born at Mount Vernon, we believe sometime 1773 to 74. Of course, uh, we don't have a record for of her actual birth date, which is similar to most of the enslaved at Mount Vernon. She was the daughter of an enslaved woman named Betty, who was actually owned by Martha Washington from her first husband. And so that made Ona Judge the, the property, the human property of, of Martha Washington. Her husband, George, of course, was responsible for the estate. So he was responsible for uh, maintaining Ona and her presence. Uh, Ona's father was a white indentured servant by the name of Andrew Judge. And that's one of the things that kind of separates her from many of the other enslaved at Mount Vernon. She had a surname, and it was a surname that the Washingtons acknowledged and wrote. Um, and so it survives in the records. And uh, she was a, uh, a young girl at Mount Vernon who at the age of 10 was taken up to the mansion house to begin to serve Martha Washington. She was an excellent seamstress. She learned that from her mother. And at the age of 16, she journeyed with the Washington. She was taken to New York with six other enslaved people to serve the Washingtons uh, as he became president. And then later on in Philadelphia, um, there were nine enslaved folks who were taken uh, to, to serve the Washingtons. So she actually grew up, she spent her, what we would now call teenage years and early adult years, in the North. And I write about how that really kind of affected her outlook, what she engaged, what she encountered. It was very different from Mount Vernon and from Virginia, and that that, in addition to other things, um, prompted her to eventually take her freedom. So it, it, it affected them all. I mean, in a sense, this, it was interesting to me because you because the, the, they get to Philadelphia. Um, they find out that uh, Washington, through his lawyer and his assistant, that if that there's a law in Pennsylvania that if you are enslaved for six months, even though it's more complicated than that, people stayed in indentured servants and more, and women were stuck, as you write about, you can talk about. But but that every six, if a person is enslaved for six months after a six month period, they are free. Yeah, yeah, it's, it was something that that George and Martha had to deal with when they came to Philadelphia and realized, mm-mm, uh, there's a problem here with the law. Pennsylvania had already started, uh, was really one of the first to, to start the Gradual Ab- Abolition Act of 1780, which um, really began to dismantle slavery. And one of the one of the caveats of this law was that if you were a non-resident and you came to Philadelphia, to Pennsylvania, and you brought enslaved people with you, they could only stay for six months. And if they stayed longer than that, then they were entitled to their freedom. And George and Martha Washington catch wind of this. The attorney general comes and says, hey, some of my slaves ran off because they found out about this law. You might want to be careful. And so what we see is George and Martha Washington not necessarily 
breaking the law, but definitely breaking the spirit of the law. Washington writes to his secretary, Tobias Lear, that he wants this to be kept confidential, just him and Tobias and Martha, to basically have this rotation, this slave rotation, to move his human property out of the state every six months in order to reset the clock. So this is strategic, right? This was um, very well planned, and if they couldn't make it back to Virginia, then a quick trip over to Trenton across the the river would reset the clock. And so uh, it was very clear that although the laws um, and the sentiment about slavery was changing in a place like Philadelphia, it had not changed for the Washingtons, and they brought with them the customs and the sensibilities of Virginia slaveholders and wanted to maintain it while they were up north. One of the things I the the I mean obviously because there's so little known you 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 did some conjecture which important importantly was divided up into what might have happened on a number of different levels mm-hmm. how, how things might have worked out because you just don't know how they worked out how she ended up talking to the free black community of Philadelphia but she clearly did and I love the um, the kind of w- way you can, t- you can talk better through how you made these assumptions about who she may have talked to she might have sat with Richard Allen. She, she might who, who led the uh, the church and began yeah. the movement in Philly, uh, and you talk about that. But and and the way she thought about escaping, mm, um, yeah. and and you have had this wonderful quote in here. When she was interviewed later in the eighteen forties, mm-hmm. whilst they were packing up to go to Virginia, I was packing to go. I didn't know where, for I knew that if I went back to Virginia, I should never get my liberty. And she made this really difficult decision, and a difficult decision it was, which you also described in this book, about how difficult it was to escape. Yeah, yeah, I I think that I did take, um, you know, I wrote my first book, A Fragile Freedom, which was about black women becoming free in the North, and I don't think that I could have written Never Caught had I not written that book, um, because that it's grounded me in the work of African-American women's history, and for, for those of us who do that kind of work or who like to read it, we are so, um, we're still sort of struggling to find our words, our comments about um, the lives of, of women in the archives that sometimes it leaves us without the evidence that as historians we need. Um, but what I was able to do was to piece together to sometimes to suggest what happened based upon the experiences of others. I think that's what we have to do in order to fill in these gaps, and that's what I tried very hard to do with um, with Never Caught, and, and also to write it in a way that I was hoping would be very accessible to a larger reading audience, to know not only know this story, um, but to, to be uh, pulled into the story almost the way um, we, would, we would read uh, fiction, although this is clearly not fiction, um, <laughs> as seen by all the photos <laughs> in the back of the book. But it's very true that, you know, Ona made this terribly difficult decision to leave everything that she knew behind, uh, her family members who were still at Mount Vernon, and as a 22-year-old woman to stand up basically to the President of the United States to resist, to refuse to be held in bondage anymore, and to escape. And the moment she did that, she knew she would no longer be the trusted member of the Washington household anymore, that she would become a fugitive, and she chose to live that life. And let me just say very quickly um, that that you did write this like a novel. I mean, I was so engaged in this book, wanting to see what happened next. I didn't know the whole story until I read your book. I knew who she was, but I never knew the story. 
and just just you know it, it, you wanted to see especially after she had escaped when she left and and, and got on Bowles's ship mm-hmm. that took her to uh, New Hampshire to Portsmouth mm-hmm. the 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 her life there as a free woman but a poor woman yeah um, and the times they they tried to get her back I mean they really tried to get her back mm-hmm. and she thwarted them each time yeah I mean pretty amazing right really you know? <laughs> It's for, when you're reading, when I was sort of doing the research, I just kept saying, wow, how did this happen? How was this young woman? She was one strong be? human being. Yes, <laughs> and, and incredible. And not only was she strong and incredible, but she's very clear, you know, she can't name names um, right. in terms of who was able to help her because that was a federal law. It was a law that, that Washington had signed uh, about the Fugitive Slave Act and the Fugitive Slave Law of 1793. And she was very careful to not name names, but it's clear that it was the free black community, both in Philadelphia and in Portsmouth, that helped to keep her safe. And it sort of reminded us of the importance of networks and friendships and kinship, you know, that helped to keep her free. And I, you know, he he pursued her. George Washington and Martha Washington pursued her basically up until three months before the president died. And so as, as president of the United States, he pursued her. He hired or asked for the help of cabinet members, the Secretary of the Treasury, a customs collector. They were unable to, to uh, bring Ona back. And then as a private citizen, he goes after her again with family members, sort of really trying to do this as discreetly as possible. And so, you know, the, the title, I was careful about the title. Um, it was a relentless pursuit that really pretty much lasted until Washington died. Um, and although there weren't, as at least none that I know of at this point, um, any additional attempts to, to run after her, Ona Judge knew that she was a fugitive. And I was careful not to use the word free or freedom in the title because right. she was not that. She was simply never caught. That's a really important uh, d- distinction. And I, I may just read this one paragraph you offer us here uh, and a little bit of another one since we can talk about this to give you a sense of how you've written this. And, and, and uh, we're talking about Bassett, who was the son-in-law of, uh, of George Washington, who he sent to New Hampshire in the second effort to, to, to steal her back. Uh, said Bassett followed the advice offered to him before leaving Mount Vernon. That is, he tried to convince the fugitive that she would face no retaliation if she voluntarily returned to Virginia. He was not abusive or rough in his tone, a tactic used to show the runaway that she could return to Virginia with little reason to worry. But Mrs. Staines, because she had married a man named Staines by this time, Mrs. Staines knew that the Washington family slave catcher offered nothing but falsehoods and that his words were empty promises. And you go a little further down, you write that one Ona Staines looked the president's nephew, in the eyes, righteous indignation and belief in her right to be free prompted her final and fierce response to Bassett, telling him, I am free now and choose to remain so. Bassett realized that Mrs. Staines' removal would be more difficult, not less. Three years of independent living had prepared her for a, the battle for her life, of her life. Mm. Ah. Uh, and I jumped around, but really, it was so, so well written. I just was like, yes. Thank you. I mean, I felt. Thank you. <laughs> you know, I really wanted the reader to. Um, to feel as though he or she were, were in that space, in that cabin, with uh, a young woman who was alone with her child. So uh, her husband was off at sea. Ona Judge actually married eight months after she had uh, run away from, from the president. And, 
you know, what that meant for her to have a child now was that the stakes were higher. It wasn't simply about her freedom anymore, her ability to stay never caught, but that slavery followed the apron strings of its women. And so that meant her her child, any children she had, would technically be the property of the Washington Park Custis family. And for that reason, I wanted people to almost imagine being in that space when a Washington family member opens, knocks on the door, and is attempting to recapture her and drag her back to a life of enslavement. You know, these are powerful moments, and this was the recovery work that I tried to do and wanted people to um, to not only imagine and not only have the facts behind um, behind the attempts to recapture her, but to really sort of feel as though they were by her side when this was happening. And, you know, I think it was important how you describe here because people always use this argument, I think, well, why didn't slaves rebel? Why didn't slaves, why didn't enslaved people run away all the time? Mm-hmm. And you really do talk about in a very eloquent way about how it was difficult to get to escape. It was difficult because the journey you had to make, whether it was cold or whether it was the summer, being able to eat, why it was mostly men making the journey, not women because of their children. And it, it, it's, it's a, that to me is one of the most compelling parts of the book because people to understand why it was so difficult to yeah. rise up against this enslavement, why it was so difficult to flee. Yeah, I, I think my students, you know, when I, t- when I teach uh, uh, undergraduates about uh, sort of early African American history, and we talk about slavery. They, you know, they almost always say, "I would, I would run away." Right? Yeah, that right. Would not have been me. And it's <laughs> like, okay, well, let's talk about that. What does it mean to run away in the 18th century from Virginia to a place like Philadelphia? How does that happen? And of course, for Ona, she's running away from from Philadelphia, so she kind of has a head start in that she's at least in a state that has already begun to end slavery. If you're trying to get from the settler slave south to the, to the north, it's, it's even more difficult. But I also push people to, to ask the question, okay, say you are one of the, 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 the very few um, who make a successful escape. What does your life mean then as a fugitive? And what does freedom mean for people who are living in a nation where slavery is still sanctioned? How free is free? We know from movies like and, and narratives, 12 Years a Slave, that free people were constantly in, uh, vulnerable and fragile and could have their freedom taken from them at any moment. Um, and so I'm really sort of asking us to, to think about, well, what does it mean to be supposedly be free in the North? I, I have deep questions about that. So I, I do want to get to this one piece here. I think it's so the, 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 the couple of pieces here, um, and I wish I'd taken more time with this with our conversation because there's so much here. Um, but you, the, the 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 fact she didn't tell the story till the 1840s mm-hmm. to the I think the paper was the Granite, but then also Liberator Garrison's paper, mm-hmm. the big largest abolitionist newspaper. She wouldn't name names other than Bowles, who was the captain because he was dead. Right. Uh, but she was very careful about that. But the fact that she she told this story so many years later, mm. um, and it was very compelling. Because you got, I went to read the original story after reading your book. Mm, great, good. That's <laughs> what I want people to do. <laughs> what I want people to do. You want to see it. You want to yeah. see the actual interviews that, that she gave. And, you know, I, I think that um, there's something that happens to people. I, I witnessed this with my, my own family members that, you know, as you, as you age, um, 
you tend to lose your filter. Uh, and I think that <laughs> somewhat what we see here with, with Ona Judge, and at that point Ona Staines, because as you said, she'd married. Um, but I, I do think that it's, tour, it's 50 years after she's run away, and that's like an incredible thing to think about. We usually, okay, Ona Judge, she was the slave of George and Martha Washington. Well, te- actually, she was enslaved up until, or at least living with them, until she was 22, but she lived for half a century as a fugitive. And it was that part of her life that I wanted more people to know about. Now, of course, when you are a fugitive, it is your first and foremost priority to remain undetected. So in terms of the evidence that's left behind about her life, you know, it's few and far between, understandably so. But there was enough to recreate what her life and the others who lived around her was like during this 50-year period. And it's not until the end of her life when the stakes are relatively low, when she knows that even though she's still a fugitive, there's really no expectation of the Washington family or really Martha Washington's heirs to come after her. She was willing to talk about it, and not only just talk about it, but to talk about it in abolitionist newspapers. So while she might not have painted herself as an abolitionist, she definitely, her story was used to kind of chronicle the moral bankruptcy of slavery from the beginning of this nation up into the 1840s. And it's fantastic to see her words uh, in these interviews in these, these early newspapers. One of the things that really grabbed me, though, as well, so much in this book did, um, was you, when you wrote about that she left her family behind, and that you wrote very eloquently about the feeling and passion she must have had and women had when they had to make decisions about whether to leave or not. Mm-hmm. But you also wrote about her sister, and who became freed, um, and the, the, the Costans and the world they built uh, as free people in what, what is now Washington, D.C. Yeah. And, and I kept thinking to myself, I can imagine if, if they had just seen the Fugitive Slave Bill for their sister. Mm. They could have found each other, in the, but, but couldn't. And yeah. here her sister was actually began to prosper with her family as abolitionists and fighters in D.C. While, while she was living in this dire poverty in New Hampshire. Yeah, I think um, part of the reason I brought in, I don't want to tell the readers the entire No, 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 we don't, no, no, I don't want them to buy a book. (laughs) They'll buy the book. (laughs) I did want to talk about her family and also who, and this is, of course, the end of the book, kind of who was left behind when Ona ran off. I tell her story, um, but I wanted us to kind of flash back and think about, all right, She's gone, and she's made that decision, but what kind of impact does this have on her family, who was left behind at Mount Vernon, her siblings who were still there? Um, And there's a very direct impact that it has upon one of her siblings, her sister, Philadelphia, who's who's basically forced to take over the responsibilities that that Ona no longer, uh, that she basically refused to do when she ran off. And so it becomes really a book that talks about how women, black enslaved women, were attempting to find freedom in different ways. So we have Ona running off, becoming a fugitive. We have her sister, who actually, through the law and some kind of fortuitous circumstance, she ends up finding her way to freedom as well. And it just reminds us about how difficult this the 19th century was and how basically black people were constantly trying to carve out a space 
in which they could live as free people. Um, and so we get that through, through the eyes of Ona and through the eyes of her sister, uh, Philadelphia. And I, you know, it's important, we only have a couple minutes left here, but the, the, that, you know, the, when Ona Judge decided to flee, she was about to be given to Martha Washington's granddaughter, which she was a crazy woman she did not want to live with. And then gets up there. But I, I can't give it all away. You just need, but, 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 <laughs> killing me here. <laughs> no, you I don't know, think so. Some people read the book. They will read the book because this. I mean, the, the, it is an amazingly well-written book. I mean, um, it, it's very gripping. Just who she runs into, and there. When you read the book, for me, it's like I movie scenes pop in my head. I'm watching it happen. Mm, uh, you know, I wanted very much for. Thank you for that. I wanted very much for. Um, you know, this is, a, and I'll, I'll say this is a transition in terms of my writing. My first book was, was um, which I'm very proud of, was a, was a very academic book. And um, like I said, I couldn't have written Never Caught had I not written that book. But I, I made the decision because I felt like this story was just so compelling and such a story that people could relate to on many different levels um, that I wanted to write it in a way that was, uh, engaging and compelling and um, almost interactive so that the reader um, would engage and interact with the story. And so it, it was a departure for me in terms of writing style, one that I actually probably feel more comfortable with um, than anything else. And so I'm really just um, super humbled and, and grateful that there's been such positive uh, kind of reviews around the book. And oh, honestly, yeah. just I feel incredibly humbled to be able to tell this story. And hopefully today in, in, in particular that, you know, Ona's somewhere right now proud and, and feeling as though, you know, her story's been told the way she wanted it told. I don't think the, she ever wanted to be forgotten. Amen to that. Dr. Erica Armstrong Dunbar is a blue and gold professor of black studies and history at the University of Delaware. The book we're talking about is her latest book, Never Caught, the Washington's relentless pursuit of the runaway slave owner judge. Uh, our homage to President's Day today with this book. You should all read it. It's just a remarkable book, and it's just an easy read as well. Uh, and Erica Armstrong Dunbar, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. And on our way out of here, um, I want to remind you the Mark Steiner Show is brought to you in part by the Maryland State Education Association. From overtesting to protecting public school funding, you can learn more about the issues affecting Maryland students, parents, and schools by visiting the Maryland State Education Association at the website marylandeducators.org. That's marylandeducators.org. And the Mark Steiner Show is a production of the Center for Emerging Media. Our senior producer is Mark Henry. Our producer is Amani Spence. Our research producer is Calvin Perry. Our production assistant is Nadia Ramlagan. Our intern is Morgan State senior Michael Dixon. Our engineer is Andre Melton. Theme music by Wal Matthews of Clean Cuts. Send me your thoughts about today's program to talkatsteinershow.org. The podcast is Steiner Show. And share with your friends. Visit us on the web at steinershow.org or listen to us via your favorite podcasting app. And for your source for cool jazz and more, WEAA 88.9 FM, the voice of the community, I'm Mark Steiner. Enjoy this gorgeous day. Take care. <laughs>